2: This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain. George, you can hear the anger on the street. The vote in the Israeli parliament just taking place. Protesters not able to get near the parliament because of the police, but protesters spilling right down the roads. There is real anger on the streets of Jerusalem right now.
1: Israeli media says that hundreds of thousands of Israelis rallied against the move as lawmakers who opposed the bill stormed out of the chamber before the vote, chanting shame, leaving it to pass with unanimous approval.
0: For the past seven months, protests have taken hold of Israel as the right-wing government has embarked on a plan to limit the power of the country's judiciary. This Monday, the Israeli parliament passed the first law of the plan, limiting the Supreme Court's ability to block government decisions.
2: And we continue with breaking news this hour. Israel's parliament has voted and approved to change a crucial aspect of the country's judicial system. The new law will limit the power of Supreme Court judges.
0: Earlier this year, in what observers have called a democratic crisis, the Israeli state began its attempts to scale back judicial power. In March, widespread protests in opposition to the plan postponed any further development. But Monday's vote by the Israeli legislature, known as the Knesset, was the first step in scaling back judiciary power. And the Israeli nationalist right wing is celebrating its passage. The stakes are high, with a potential further consolidation of power by the right wing. There are a lot of implications of what this could mean for the future of Israel, for the Future of Palestine, and U.S.-Israel relations.
2: Joining us now to discuss all of this is Megav Zunshine. Uh, megav is an Israeli-American journalist and commentator. She's based in Tel Aviv and has covered Israeli politics and U.S. foreign policy for over a decade. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, and other publications. She's currently the senior Israel analyst with the International Crisis Group. She's joining us now from Tel Aviv. Megav, thank you very much for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks for having so let's just begin. The, the The latest news is that this law passed. There's a lot of debate happening right now among legal scholars in Israel as to whether or not the Supreme Court will actually try to invalidate it. It seems like a, a lot of legal scholars are suggesting that the court probably will not do that, at least not imminently, but that there are sound legal arguments sort of from both directions. Give people a a sense of exactly what this means if this law sticks and the Supreme Court or the high court, as it's also referred to, does not invalidate it. What does this mean?
1: So the reasonable ability clause, as it's called in English, I guess, uh, they just basically canceled it. So up until now, the Supreme Court could strike down laws uh not basic laws which are the closest thing to what Israel has as a constitution but other laws um it can strike them down if it finds them to be unreasonable uh and unreasonable is a very kind of unclear term but in you know legal parlance i guess it means when you put like political considerations before the public good or before other interests so this is mostly an issue of corruption, separation of powers. It mostly has to do with administrative and ministerial decisions. So for example, when this government was formed, uh, the head of the Shas party, Arya Derry, who has been convicted recently of tax fraud, was appointed to be interior minister, which is a very senior position in the government. And uh, the Supreme Court came and said, this is not reasonable. He can't be a minister when he was literally just convicted of tax fraud. So he was fired as a result of the, they honored the Supreme Court decision. But now with this reasonability clause uh, gone, potentially they could re reinstate um, him and then there, there would be a crisis of what, what would happen next.
0: So Benjamin Netanyahu came to power, returned to power on the back of a very extreme coalition in the past few years. Can you tell us a bit about the nature of this coalition and how its motivations for helping push through these revisions to Israel's judiciary?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Netanyahu has basically been in power for over a decade, I believe like 12, 13 years now. And then there was a lull in which he wasn't for about a year. And when he returned to power, he basically had already been charged and under, on trial for corruption in several cases. And that basically caused a split in the right in Israel um, between Uh, Various members of his own party who split off and other members who decided they're not going to work with him anymore as a result of him being on trial. They believed he shouldn't be uh, serving as prime minister, even though it's technically legal for him to do so. So that split on the right created... Uh, fissures in which Netanyahu basically couldn't uh, become, uh, couldn't c- come back to power and uh, form a majority coalition without turning to far-right parties. So the two parties that are on the far right, the settler nationalist religious far-right that came into power um, as a result of Netanyahu deciding to work with them, uh, the religious Zionist party is one of them is headed by Bezalel Smotrich, who is now the finance minister and a minister in the defense ministry, which has a lot of ramifications that we can get into later. Um, and Itamar Ben-Gvir, who runs the Jewish Power Party, which is essentially a racist, Meir Kahana uh, party. Um, so these two parties um, have a lot of power. They're both senior ministers in government. Um, and it, ironically, the person who's been leading the judicial overhaul is actually somebody in Netanyahu's Likud party, and his name is Yariv Levine. He's the minister of justice. He is also a pro-settlement annexationist type. He's talked about uh, wanting to annex the West Bank for quite a long time and how the Supreme Court uh, gets in the way of doing that. So they all kind of share the same agenda on that level. But the person who's actually been leading this and came out right after they were elected at the end of December of 2022, he came out and said, "Okay, we're going through with this judicial reform. It's going to start. It's going to look like this. And the minute that happened, protests started to erupt. So that's kind of how it started. What, what is
2: the actual, uh, agenda here? I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of analysis suggesting, oh, this has to do with, uh, with some of the examples that you're mentioning that there, there are corruption cases and other cases against Netanyahu. There was the, uh, the blocking of, of an appointment of someone because of the, the past convictions. But what, I mean, from your analysis, Mehrav, what, what is the, what's the actual agenda? What do they, what do they really want to do, uh, by passing this?
1: Uh, they want to annex the West Bank to Israel. Uh, I believe that that's, they want to basically, I mean, there's other elements involved. The religious parties want to, for example, um, you know, formalize into law that they will be exempt from military conscription because their communities, uh, study, uh, Torah and Jewish law instead of, um, going into the army. So there's different interests for different groups, but what kind of ties them all together And what has kind of become a status quo consensus in Israel, uh, for better and worse, is that Israel holds control of the West Bank and that it needs to legalize that and formalize that control. Uh, Because the settlers specifically in the settler movement have had certain blows um, to their aspirations over the years. So there was the Oslo Accords, which was one of the major first ones. There was the withdrawal from the Gaza Strip in 2005. And there have been Supreme Court decisions, uh, not many, but some that have obstructed and made it more difficult for Israel to continue to settle in the West Bank. For example, in 1979, the Supreme Court ruled that Israel cannot take over private Palestinian land when it can be proven that it's private property of Palestinians um, simply for the purpose of replacing it with Jewish uh, inhabitants. It can be for security reasons. It can be for other reasons. So that, for example, was a Supreme Court decision that the settlers find to be, you know, a big wrench in their plans. It, and if you look at the people who are leading the judicial overhaul plan, um, the hardliners in the government, uh, most of them, except for Yariv Levine, live in settlements and are settlers, and some of them are hardcore settlers. Um, so I would say that that is definitely the common denominator here. They don't want the court getting in the way of their plans to continue to create this greater Israel.
0: So there have been these protests against this judiciary reform for a very, very long time now, several months consecutively, and this week we saw protests around the passage of the bill, which were even quite uh, violent or, uh, you know, Escalating, it seems like in the face of this very determined effort by the Netanyahu government. Can you tell us a bit about the motivations and the the underlying drive of the protesters? Because clearly there's a divide in Israel society between secular and uh, more religious Israelis. How does that manifest, and particularly over this issue you mentioned of annexing the West Bank?
1: I mean, so... To understand what the protest movement looks like, it's hundreds of thousands of people, but it's a fairly homogenous group. Not politically, but socioeconomically and also ethnically as far as them being like from the Ashkenazi elite, which is Jews of European descent versus Mizrahi Jews who are from North Africa and the Arab world. So. Uh, if you look at the people who are going out to protest, these are people from the center of Israel, mostly, even though there are protests across the country. I don't want to undermine that. Um, but they have served in elite combat units. They are the leading high tech company leaders, uh, you know, r- doctors. I mean, these are from like the very, very high levels of Israeli society. And they feel like their their contract that they have with the state to have a liberal democracy as they see it is being. Uh, broken, um, and that settlers and religious nationalists are taking over what is otherwise a great country uh, that does wonderful things. So they feel very betrayed. And they've also risked their lives in several wars, their kids risked lives in uh, wars. And all of a sudden, they're supposed to be listening to people who didn't serve in the army because they're either uh, too dangerous or too religious or whatever. And so they're extremely resentful. Uh, So they've kind of come out in uh, very, very high numbers. I think this is unprecedented um, in Israel. uh, And also the consistency. Uh, You've had like pretty much every week for six months, 100,000 people coming out. And they've they've done it not just in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, but also in North and South as well. Uh, But, you know, it's also important to point out who's not coming out to the protests, which is what I alluded to before, which are the Palestinian citizens of Israel are not there. Um, Jews of other ethnicity, whether it's Ethiopian Jews or Jews of Arab descent, are mostly not there. Um, so it's it's a very specific kind of movement, and you could see it as a secular religious divide on some level. Uh, but there are religious people who come out, uh, and there are also right-wing people who are coming out. And I mean, one of the leaders or the faces of the protest movement is a former defense minister and chief of staff, uh, Bogi Alon, who oversaw, you know, many operations in Gaza and is you know very much on the right um so you know it's definitely not a right left divide as far as the protest movement um it's much more like a liberal liberal urban i think more cosmopolitan divide uh, versus the more conservative right wing in israel
2: you know and right right now as as we speak, there's also uh, once again um, attacks happening. Uh, settlers uh, attacking Palestinians. You also had the incursion once again into Jenin, um in early uh, July. Um, and i you know I've been hearing from a lot of Palestinians with different perspectives on this. There are. There are some people who take a very hard line and say, let it all burn, let Netanyahu uh, do this, and it'll finally expose that state for what it actually is. And then you have other people who are sort of pointing out what they perceive as Uh, The hypocrisy of the intensity of the protests, Uh, Mariam Barghouti, for instance, the senior correspondent in Palestine for uh, Mondo Weiss tweeted on Tuesday, Israelis are upset that they're being arrested, sprayed with skunk water, beaten for protesting against dictatorship laws. The Israeli protesters, soldiers and armed forces beat us, shot us, sprayed our homes, bodies, killed us for protesting ethnic cleansing. What's what's your sense of the voices coming from uh, from Palestine and Palestinians uh, criticizing these protests along the lines that I just mentioned?
1: Yeah, I mean, even if you don't go as far as the West Bank, if you just look at, at Palestinian citizens of Israel and why they aren't showing up in big numbers, I mean, some of their leaders are calling them to come out. It's not that they're boycotting it per se. But for very similar reasons, which is that where were all these Jewish Israelis when Palestinians were shot in uh, 2000, just before the second Intifada, start, Palestinian citizens were shot. Where were they when there were decisions made by the Supreme Court to prioritize Jewish land rights over Palestinian land rights? Again, I'm talking about within Israel, where everybody is a citizen. Um, so it's in that sense, it's similar. It's the Palestinians who live in the West Bank. I mean, they've been living under occupation. They can't vote for the people who control their lives. Um, and. You know, for them, the situation is so bad. And actually, even before this government came into power, uh, the, the situation was uh, getting already very bad. And uh, the former defense minister uh, outlawed six uh, Palestinian civil society organizations as terrorist organizations. I mean, all these things were happening even before this government came in. And then when this government started, it got even worse. And the trigger has been extremely, extremely, you know, uh, Hot. I mean, there's been more Palestinians killed in the last six months and last year than I think since the Second Intifada. It's basically a consensus that if a, if a Palestinian throws a stone at a soldier, he should be shot at. And, and they are being shot at in great numbers. Um, and this is something that the protest movement isn't addressing almost at all, except for the tiny minority, uh, which is the anti-apartheid, anti-occupation bloc, which is really a tiny minority. Uh, it's very important that they're there. Uh, but for Palestinians in the West Bank, some of this judicial overhaul stuff, as, as extreme as it, as it could be as far as the annexationist agenda, it doesn't change the reality on the ground day to day. That continues apace regardless. And Israel, you know, has found many ways to kind of legalize what is illegal and to de facto create uh, realities on the ground that are uh, extremely detrimental anyway. Um, so, you know, for them, the situation kind of day to day is so bad already. Um, and, and again, like, you know, some of the Israelis that are protesting now and are getting skunk water or are getting police brutality. I mean, they're getting like the tiniest, tiniest taste of what Palestinians get on a daily basis. It's also important to remember that Israelis have the freedom and the right to protest, whereas Palestinians in the West Bank don't, like they literally don't have a right to protest. Um, so these are things that are not, you know, coming through uh, clearly enough inside Israel and, um As impressive and important as the protest movement is, they're somehow they compartmentalize these issues. I mean, even if you stop an israeli uh protesting and tell him what ask him what he thinks about the occupation the settlements he'll he'll say yeah it's horrible it's horrible, it's horrible, but i 'm fighting this fight um right now, and this is the the fight that I need to fight so i mean that's that 's the unfortunate reality of it.
0: You mentioned that the judiciary has been at least to some degree an impediment to this annexationist idea held by the the right in Israel over the West Bank. With the judiciary out of the way and with the annexation theoretically going forward in the future, what is the vision that uh, they have for how the West Bank will be governed and controlled? And would it include permanent legal control of the Palestinians? Or is the long-term vision to get Palestinians out of there uh, by some means slowly or quickly? How do they actually see the idea of Israel controlling the West Bank in the long term?
1: It depends who you mean by they, um, and it depends who you ask. Um, certain political parties, like the um, religious Zionist party headed by Smutrich, he is a radical hilltop youth type, and he does have a, a clear platform of either uh, taking over all of the West Bank areas, A, B, and C, Um annexing it. And then either those Palestinians have to kind of give in and be secondhand citizens. I mean, not citizens, be subjects of Israeli rule or leave or be killed. I mean, that's basically what his platform says. Um, And that's kind of, I think, the most extreme version of it. And if you speak to certain radical settlers, they'll say, like, I realize Palestinians are here and they don't want to leave. And that's why I'm fighting with them to the bitter end, because they want the same thing that I want. They want to stay here. Um so you have you know that and then you have uh, more moderate settlers who they'll tell you different things they'll say that uh based on the Oslo accords area C which is 60% of the West Bank under full Israeli control that should remain under part of an Israeli state but A and B which is where most of the urban centers are Ramallah and Nablus those places can become part of a Palestinian autonomous entity of some sort um you know so they'll tell you that or they'll come up with different ways or they'll say um you know areas A and B can be a maybe a state i don't know how that would work and then if you ask them about gaza that's a whole other story i don't know how that they think that would work i think most of them keep gaza out as if it's just like this separate entity that will somehow disappear if we ignore it but i mean so it really depends on 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 who you ask and there are a lot of nuances between uh, the different elements of the right um but and you know and, and likud you know the likud party headed by netanyahu it, it You know, he he basically threatened annexation in 2020 and then went back on it because of the Abraham Accords. But if you look on the ground today, um, you know, and also if you look at his promises when he formed this government, he basically said, uh, we have uh, the right to determination, self-determination across the entire land and we're going to settle it as much as we want. Um, and I think basically the difference on the right today is between it's not, you know... It, if we say that most of the West Bank will be under Israeli control, the question is whether Palestinians will be able to be citizens or not. Um, and some think that they could be, and, and it would be like some kind of, you know, the settlers will tell you like, yeah, they can become citizens as long as they kind of respect that it's a Jewish country. There's a Jewish anthem. Um, there are, they are a minority here. Like some of them will say that, but I think in reality, you know, obviously if you look at what happens inside 1948 Israel today, that's not really going to be the case.
2: I wanted to ask you about the U.S. response to this. You know, Joe Joe Biden, throughout his political career, has staked out a pretty aggressively pro-Israel stance, um, even relative to other really militant U.S. politicians. And Biden has also gotten in trouble for some of the uh, the claims that he's made about his deep uh, connection and relationships to famous Israeli politicians, Golda Meir, and, and, and others that turned out to either be not true or stretching the truth. Um, and there also were reports in the early 1980s that Joe Biden uh, passionately defended the 1982 invasion of Lebanon. So I I say all of this not to just talk about history, but to to say there's a very long context for Joe Biden personally. Also, there's almost no one in the history of American politics that's been in American politics longer than Biden. So he's been around long enough where I think we can pretty clearly see where his politics are. And on this particular matter right now, on the one hand, the Biden White House has criticized Netanyahu. And uh, you had his uh, press spokesperson Karen Jean Pierre saying, quote, it's unfortunate that the vote took place today. It happened with the slimmest possible majority. And then talking about the U.S. Israel relationship, she said it remains strong, quote, the core of that relationship is certainly on democratic values, shared democratic values and interests. And that will continue to be the case. Um, but also these reports saying that no one should expect Biden to take any actual concrete action against Israel over this judicial overhaul. And the quote from a U.S. official was, "quote Rather than think about this in terms of consequences to our relationship, we think about our relationship as one where we don't hesitate to express concerns." That's sort of a verbal gobbledygook that just you know is is flowing out into the U.S. press. But but Megav, talk about the U.S. response to this and the complexities or layers of it, not just Biden as an individual, but the U.S. stance in general right now.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Biden does have a very strong relationship to Israel, even though his relationship with Netanyahu is much more strained and under as vice president under Obama, it was, you know, really not good, and I think he really dislikes Netanyahu to put it mildly, uh, but because he feels such a connection to Israel, uh, I think it's an almost an emotional connection where he does feel comfortable being very kind of offended and hurt by the the moves that Netanyahu is making and feeling free to kind of share that maybe behind closed doors. But on this issue similar to the issue of settlement expansion and the occupation, I don't expect the u s to do anything about it, and that you know and, and in You know, ironically, Biden is uh well positioned maybe the most well positioned president because he is so pro israel to actually take certain actions uh, whether on the judicial overhaul or on settlement expansion uh he's more pro israel than obama was who was a very pro israel president despite some caveats uh despite his anti settlement stance um and even more pro israel than trump in some ways because biden hasn't really undone a lot of what trump did uh on israel and he's you know a big cheerleader of the abraham accords and he he really has done almost nothing for the palestinian israeli issue so Um, So I don't expect the U.S. to do much about it. But I do think that, you know, there are obviously changes happening on the ground in the Democratic Party. And there are former U.S. ambassadors like Dan Kurtzer who have come out saying, all right, this is it. Like, we can't continue to give aid unconditionally to Israel if it's just going to do whatever it wants with it. You know, Israel is already very prosperous. It doesn't need this. You know, and, and but the issue here is that Biden isn't doing this because, or not just because he cares or it's emotionally involved for him, it's doing it because the U.S. will have a much harder time supporting Israel politically and economically if it doesn't look like a democracy. Um, And that's just, you know, its own, that's the U.S. interest. Um, And, of course, that's problematic on many levels, but it makes Biden look bad. Um, and it's embarrassing for Biden. It's embarrassing for the U.S. Um, And it certainly is be- going to become more and more untenable within the Democratic Party to to defend those issues. But, uh, you know, what's also really frustrating is that Biden and the Biden administration in the last few weeks with the Tom Friedman articles and, you know, all these phone calls has kind of put a lot of political capital in this judicial overhaul issue, which is you know, which is fine, but he's but he's basically kind of sending the message that, oh, OK, you need to re- maintain your liberal democratic mechanisms. But on the occupation stuff, whatever, you know, we're not going to deal with that. We're not going to put political capital into that. Um, we just need you to look like a liberal democracy. Um, so, you know, I find it to be very problematic. And I think that both the U.S. policy on this and the media more widely is completely you know, gobbling up this judicial overhaul stuff while completely not putting emphasis on what's really happening on the ground, uh, which is that Palestinians are being killed at alarming rates and that everything is being accelerated. Um, and the issues that are happening within the ministries and the way that they're changing the authorities and the powers to, to do things on the ground is is really where the, the attention, both policy and media wise, should be. And instead it's on this, which is, you know, in some ways like a brilliant uh, distraction that was created by the right
0: you mentioned earlier, too, that uh, Bezalus Motrik and uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir are in, have very powerful portfolios in the Israeli government, uh, thanks to being part of Netanyahu's coalition. Can you talk a bit about how they're actually changing the legal and uh, security situation in the West Bank, given these relatively unprecedented portfolios they've been given?
1: Yeah. So Ben Greer is the national security minister. It was actually used to be called public security minister, which is in charge of the police force. Now he's changed it to national security minister. He's a very, very good politician. He's a populist, um, and he has now also taken under his wing the border police, which is technically under the IDF. Uh, so that is the major change that he's made. Uh, the border police are the the ones who act on the ground in the West Bank. They have the policing authorities as opposed to IDF soldiers when something happens. So, for example, if a settler attacks a Palestinian, it is the border police who potentially should be coming in to do something about it. They almost never do. But he has taken control over that force um, and just... Even without that step, just the fact that Ben Gver from the uh, you know from the settlement of Hebron in the occupied West Bank, just the fact that he has become this minister in charge of the police, which by the way also affects how police act uh, in Jerusalem in the Al Aqsa Mosque Temple Mount area compound. I mean that's already had significant. He's gone up there several times when he was first elected. That was the first thing that he did, um, and that has created not just um, you know anger and frustration amongst Palestinians, but in the entire Arab world, because you have kind of a settler fanatic who is in charge of, you know, it's the holiest, some of the holiest sites for Muslims. Um, so just the fact that he's reached this uh, position is already uh, extremely problematic and inflammatory. And then Smotrich, um, who is really kind of a very smart politician, um, he became the minister of finance, which is not what he wanted, but I think it's basically just a cover for doing what he really wants to do, which is changing the way the military controls the West Bank and moving more and more of the military operations and controls into civilian authorities under under him. So the civil administration, which is kind of the arm within the IDF that deals with the day-to-day lives of Palestinians, with uh, permits, with uh, infrastructure, with what where they can build, where they have to just demolish for Jews and Palestinians alike, um, this is where he has taken now the authority from the defense minister and from the IDF, um, and that is you know already having serious ramifications for the reality on the ground. For example, Haaretz had a report now that uh, Jewish construction that is normally um, demolished or evacuated uh, in the first six months of this government is almost not 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 happening at all. Um, And he has a very clear platform of, um, you know, not allowing Palestinians to build anywhere, which is already pretty much the case, but certainly in Area C of the West Bank. um, He is now basically in charge of it. It's like putting a cat in charge of the milk. So this is, you know, this is what we're seeing on the ground. And you can also feel it as far as the I think one of the most, uh, you know, disconcerting trends that I'm following very closely is settler violence, um, which, you know, is very much. A phenomenon done by settlers, but it's also very much enabled passively and actively by the state, uh, both the army and the defense ministry and the police. I mean, all of and the government. They all, uh, you know, they don't charge these people. They don't put them in jail. Um, the number of investigations that are closed are is like ninety eight point seven percent or something. So, you know, and, and the, the settlers who feel represented by ben Gurion and Smotrich are completely emboldened. So that's why you've seen also much larger numbers uh, of, sett- you know, settler violence happens every day on various levels. But what we saw in February in Hawara and just last month in Turmos Aya and Umsafa and other places in the West Bank is basically, you know, settlers who are armed civilians uh, going in and terrorizing Palestinians. And they have the full backing of the government and when I say full backing, I mean that there's a lot of ministers, including the two that I mentioned, who who simply won't condemn it, or they'll stay silent, which is basically the same thing. So, it's uh, it's very dangerous and very problematic. I
2: mean, it, it seems, uh, Megav what if, if it's true what you're saying, and it seems to be true that one of the central goals uh, of this uh, of this law uh, is is uh, to escalate annexation to escalate ex- further expulsion of palestinians uh, the seizure of of land um that also uh, it could be that they now start meting out the death penalty uh in the judicial system um against suspected terrorists or others um but it does seem as though one of the consequences and this could happen quite swiftly is that the Palestinian Authority, which is already struggling for legitimacy even within Palestine itself, um, further that their their acceptability further diminishes, and you then have uh, resistance groups, armed resistance groups, escalate their responses to Israel, escalate their attacks. That this sort of leads to potentially another intifada, um, and um, and it seems like there are some forces in Palestine that would very much welcome Netanyahu doing this because now the sort of moment of truth is gonna be called. I mean, it, it seems like it's, it, this could very, very quickly take an already horrifying situation and, and double its incendiary nature or triple it, it, it very, very quickly.
1: I mean, everything that you just described is already happening on some level, uh, right? The PA is basically has lost legitimacy. It's lost control of certain areas. Obviously, Israel has an interest in maintaining that it, it does, so it keeps it on this brink. Um, But there are already resistance groups, armed groups who aren't affiliated either with Fatah or Hamas. So you already have this happening. You have a vacuum of, of, uh, you know, PA security forces in places like Janine and Nablus. Um, You have Israel going into areas A much more, much more fervently. They are using now aerial bombardments in the West Bank, something that they didn't do for 20 years. Um, So you already have these phenomenons taking place. Um, And it does seem like the way in which this right wing government is headed, you know, even though there are people who understand that and certainly the military as opposed to the politicians, you know, they very clearly understand why the collapse of the PA would be absolutely horrible uh, for Israelis and for Israeli security. And they're working very hard to, to work against that. Um, So you actually have, like, very clear tensions between the military and the political echelon. Um, Also on the judicial overhaul issues as well, as you see that there's many reservists and combat pilots who are refusing to serve as a result. So you have these tensions building up, and Israel does seem to be headed towards further and further chaos and, you know, something that's very counterintuitive and counterproductive to wanting to maintain what otherwise has been, in the last 20 years, a very steady ability to, you know, somehow create this uh, modicum of stability and security while continuing to um, control, expand, dispossess Palestinians. Um, You know, so it's done it fairly successfully. And now you have this, and it's done it with impunity, and the international community has completely let it do so. And so now you have a right, far right government who's kind of pushing the boundaries even further, and wants to take what is already de facto and turn it into something much more formal in de jure, And that is, is having, you know, it's, it's starting to create cracks and fissures in, in the system. Um, so yeah, it does not bode well for anybody. Um, and I think Israel doesn't have a very good strategy, not for Gaza and not for the West bank. Um, it just doesn't have a good alternative right now. And the, you know, the PA is in shambles and Palestinian political, uh, organization and, uh, and the ability to organize is in shambles. So when you talk about the potential for an intifada, I mean, the intifada that we saw, the last two, maybe it won't look that way anymore because of the level of control and fragmentation and surveillance uh, that, you know, that Israel has become so good at. It could be that what we're seeing now, which is like a lot more weapons, you know, being flushed through from Jordan to the West Bank and just like 17 year olds picking up a weapon and with no agenda and no affiliation, just shooting at soldiers, Um That's basically, you know, you could call that already a third intifada if you'd like, but it's definitely um, not good for anybody.
0: You mentioned that uh, from the U.S. perspective that it's very important that Israel appears to be a democracy and the trajectory that's going on right now suggests there'll be less and less like that. And were there to be a collapse in the PA or an annexation of the West Bank, certainly the chaos that uh, projects from Israel will be greater. From the perspective of the Israeli right, And given these discussions, even in the press in the U.S., increasingly cutting aid to Israel or conditioning aid to Israel, do they feel that the U.S. relationship is critical to their plans in the future? Or do they feel that they can hold on to that military and political relationship regardless of how things may change in the West Bank? Do they see this as a relationship to outgrow, I would say, or is it something that they expect to be there regardless what they pursue in the future?
1: If you talk to the practical right and the military right, which is, you know, a big chunk of the people who control uh, the mechanisms of this country, they would say that, of course, the U.S.-Israel relationship is the most important thing. I think the foreign ministry, even today under Netanyahu's foreign minister, that is their, I mean, it could be that it was the previous one, but their main goal is to maintain and strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship. And if you talk to former military intelligence heads and heads of the Sheen, like they're all agree that the most, the biggest threat right now is A, national unity as a result of what's happening, but B, uh, the threat that the U.S. will no longer support Israel in the same way. Um So the practical right thinks that it's it's necessary it's the most important kind of asset that israel has Uh, if you talk to the more nationalist far settler right uh you know they make comments about how oh we respect the u.s of course but we're a sovereign country and we'll do what we want i mean you even had naftali bennett who doesn't live in a settlement but is a pro-settler politician uh talking about how israel has become an economic power in the region and it doesn't really need u.s aid in the same way that it did and he actually wants to kind of you know, wean Israel off of this aid in order to be able to do things, uh, you know, with more currency. So, you know, you have kind of different perspectives, but I think the security uh, apparatus and establishment is very, very concerned that the politicians in power, again, some of which have no security background at all. And the opposite, they have a background of attacking security forces in Israel, that they are completely undermining the U.S. Israel relationship. Um, and, and that will hurt, you know, that will hurt in the, in the future. And I think, we are going to see, even if it's not, uh, you know, an, an announcement that the U.S. is going to stop aid, because that, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But we probably could see little movements, uh, the kinds that Obama even tried to do, which is to, like, abstain from vetoing a U.N. resolution on settlements or or things of this nature. And I think uh, probably we can expect that to happen a bit more, but it it, it won't be formal. It'll be very kind of uh, tacit and piecemeal.
2: You know, it's it, it's also this doesn't often get mentioned, but but part of what I think people need to understand about this four billion plus dollars in what is just universally referred to as aid, a lot of money that the U.S. is giving to Israel actually comes back to U.S. defense contractors and the war industry. I mean, it, there's a way in which it's it's also it's not just about uh, the 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 U.S.-Israel special relationship. Um, there's a capitalist dimension to this. There's a war profiteering dimension to this, and there's the military industrial complex in the United States, which benefits from it. And then those companies are financing the election campaigns of many uh, politicians in the United States, both Democrat and Republican. I just think it's important to like put that on the table because it, it it's surprising, but it just doesn't often get mentioned. But related to that aspect of this, Megav, I wanted to ask you, Is there anything about this current situation that can tell us anything about Israel's posture right now and the Netanyahu government toward Iran? Is is there any connection between this uh, judicial move, this law, and Israel's posture toward Iran at this moment?
1: Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, the Iran issue is something that Netanyahu has built his career on. He went to Congress about it. And, you know, and we actually haven't heard him talking about Iran that much lately, even though we are at a moment in time where Iran could not be closer, right, to a nuclear weapon as a result of Trump at, at his behest pulling out of the JCPOA. Um so I mean I, I'm not sure I see a direct connection. Um, but I do see that, you know, Netanyahu has for a long time, and I mean we reached the point that we reached because he has been doing, you know, attacking civil society, inciting against Palestinians, and creating facts on the ground to to build this conservative kind of camp, um, and also making, you know, relationships with the evangelicals and the republicans, which would not you know make it so that he doesn't really need Joe Biden uh, because he has he can wait for the next election and he doesn't even need him but if you ask me specifically on the Iran issue if if Israel wants to um, build up a military power to strike Iran or if it wants to build up a credible military threat with the U S then obviously what it's doing now is the counterintuitive to that. Um, so I'm not really sure what Netanyahu's strategy on that is. And again, the security establishment is very much against Netanyahu and what he's doing because specifically of this issue uh, that we need the U.S. to support, whether they do it with us or without us, we need U.S. support. Um, but I guess, you know, part of Netanyahu's foreign policy the last few years has been to build up what he would have, would have hoped would have been an Arab NATO against Iran. That obviously isn't happening. And, you know, his, you know his push for normalization with Saudi Arabia, I think is part of this effort and part of also a way to detract from his domestic issues, because I don't think it's something that is going to happen anytime in the near future. Um So I think he may be using the judicial overhaul and let's not forget he's on trial for corruption, um, using those issues to kind of uh, detract um and then come back to the Iran issue when it's convenient for him. But if you look at the the practical approach, I mean, he's, He's not really doing what, uh, what a responsible kind of adult who wants to make sure that Iran, you know, doesn't have a nuclear weapon should be doing. So I don't know if that's him being irrational or him just worrying only about its own political survival. Uh, but it, it doesn't really seem to add up.
2: Just, just one follow up on that. Um, I'm, I'm curious. This isn't so much about this, uh, the, the so-called judicial reform, but the, um, uh, in general, Netanyahu's view of, China's recent, um, very clear assertion of itself as a major diplomatic player in the world. You mentioned uh, the normalization, the move to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Well, China steps in and brokers this agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, China is positioning itself potentially to be the one country that possibly would have the credibility to bring the uh, Russia-Ukraine war to an end. I'm curious about your analysis of how this impacts Israel and Netanyahu specifically like how does how does Netanyahu see China's most recent moves and a really kind of unprecedented assertion of itself as not just the a, a premier economic power but also a diplomatic power in the world?
1: I mean, I think it has yet to be seen whether China will be a diplomatic power, and I, I think it has yet to be seen whether this Iran-Saudi rapprochement actually, you know, goes through. And I, if you talk to foreign ministry officials here, uh, they'll surprisingly say that they'll both be skeptical about where it's going, um, and they'll say that, you know, even if it does go through, it won't change the fundamental divide um, and resentment between Saudi and Iran. Um, But they'll tell you that this, you know, that the landscape in the Gulf and in the Arab world is only opening for Israel and for everybody. And Israel, just like Arab countries are hedging. They're hedging against the U.S. And for example, the fact that, uh, the Biden administration has boycotted effectively not only Ben Gvir and Smotrich, but also Netanyahu by not inviting him to the White House. You know, you know, the Israeli interpretation of that is, well, look at how the U.S. is treating its most, you know, closest ally. When the, when the Emiratis or Bahrain looks at that, they'll say, why would we trust the U.S. if this is what it's doing to Israel? So, uh, you know, in, in a sense, Israel doesn't think that the US is serving its interests at all by doing that. Um, And I guess, you know, China's role is kind of a wild card right now. Um, And we'll have to wait and see. But it's very clear that the US, the Israeli and Arab, I think, analysis of what's happening in the last few years is, and specifically under Biden, is that, you know, we cannot rely on the U.S. anymore. It's it's not interested in the Middle East. It's not prioritizing us. So we're going to have to look elsewhere.
0: I want to ask you one final question. It goes back to something you mentioned uh, a bit earlier, is that in Israeli society, this there are these very stark social divisions, obviously between Israeli Jews and Palestinians, but also among Israel, different sectors of Israeli Jewish society as well. And these protests have been many ways opened up a fissure between the more socially liberal Ashkenazi Jews, put very broadly, and then Mizrahis and others who are more conservative in different ways. How may Israeli society change on a social level? Were this check by the Supreme Court removed? And if Israel society becomes more conservative or more overtly religious, how may that manifest in terms of how Israel portrays itself of the outside world? And you use a very important word, which is the sense of betrayal on the part of uh, the more liberal sector of society. What is the actual practical manifestation of that, or how they could manifest uh, going forward with this law in place?
1: I mean, so there's several things to address, so I hope that I reach all of them. But, I mean, you know, the the, the betrayal by the liberal camp in Israel is is the fear that their, you know, secular, Lifestyle, their progressive lifestyle. Um, they you know, I mean, in in certain places in Israel or most places in Israel, there's a, you know, there's a fairly liberal and progressive approach to, for example, women's rights, uh, gay rights, things like that. Um, so I think there's a a real fear that those issues um, that specifically affect women more than anything else, because of the religious uh, determination to kind of anchor a certain aspect of Jewish law and theocracy into uh, everyday life, uh, separation, let's say, of women in public sphere and stuff like that. Um, There's a real fear that that could happen. Um, So they're fighting on the streets for that. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, I don't know if the judiciary will actually be gone as a check, and I think there is a strong enough movement here that will fight for that to remain in place. But I think what we're generally seeing as As a trend in Israel, and it's also a demographic trend. Uh, First of all, lots of Israeli secular, uh, educated Israelis are leaving. I mean, a lot of the people I used to be friends with here have left. And, you know, everybody who I know who works on the issues of, you know, progressive rights, occupation, uh, are considering leaving. Um, And it's not necessarily just because of Israel's human rights violations. It's because the traffic is really bad. The prices are really high. Um, and the education system is absolutely awful. So there's just like a feeling that the, you know, that the country is kind of falling apart. And if you look at, you know, Jerusalem, as an example, you have a city that is uh, occupied and next has uh, almost 40% of it is Palestinian, and they're not citizens, they're residents. And then you have like religious Jews Um, and much, much less secular Jews than he used to have and cultural institutions and non-kosher restaurants that have shut down because there are no longer enough, you know, uh, people who want to go out and see them. So the Jerusalem issue is kind of, I think, a microcosm of what we could start to see in the rest of the country, which is like a tribal, a tribal reality where people kind of are in their silos and where the government becomes more and more religious and right-wing um, and more and more people who can will leave. Um, so I think that's the general trend. Um, and then you, but you, you know, some people are calling what we see now a civil war. So you could see this reaching ahead with these judicial overhaul legislation, which I don't know if the government is going to continue or it's going to take a break now after this one, because, you know, there's, I, I mean, the next military operation, whether it's Lebanon, Gaza, something is going to have to give at some point um, and they're going to have to see what happens. But Um, but the divisions are continuing to become wider and wider. And, you know, also the economy in Israel, which has been so strong for so long, uh, the occupation has actually only helped Israel's economy. It hasn't hurt it. Um, if the economy, which people are warning is going to get hurt as a result of Israel no longer appearing to be a democracy in the West, that could have serious repercussions. Um, if Israelis can't go and, you know, have fun in Greece and, Europe and other places, Thailand and India, where they like to go because they don't have enough money to do it, then you know, that could change the situation. I mean, ironically, you have like a weird reverse form of BDS that could happen, um, where Israelis no longer have the ability to enjoy life in the same way. If that starts to happen, then you're going to see some dramatic shifts.
2: I, I want to just sneak in one, one last question. Um, is, is there a scenario where Netanyahu's government falls as a result of this?
1: I mean, in Israel, there's always a scenario for everything, (laughs) but, um, it's like the right has been, even just yesterday, they basically threatened to overthrow the government if Netanyahu doesn't go through with his judicial overhaul. Um, but I don't think that they, they would have to have much to gain from collapsing this coalition. Like all the people in the coalition at this point have more to lose, uh, from going to elections than to gain maybe in the, in the near future that could change. Um, but you know, it's. It's very hard to see how it's going to be toppled at this point. Um, it kind of, you know, even though there's a lot of infighting between them. The thing is that even if it is toppled, which it's, it's a possible scenario, like an, another election wouldn't necessarily create a much different result. Um, and that's kind of the loop that Israel has been in for a long time. So some of the movements that come out of these protests could form political parties. Uh, but they just, it's just too early to tell. Megav,
2: thank you very much for being with us here on Intercepted.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Megav Zanshan, an Israeli-American journalist and commentator based in Tel Aviv. She's currently the senior Israel analyst for the International Crisis Group.
2: And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercept. That is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show, and this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this program, Intercepted. And definitely leave us a rating or a review. It helps other listeners to find us. If you want to give us feedback, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill.
0: And I'm Murtaza Hussain.